Greetings in our Lord Jesus Christ, and welcome to the audio ministry of Christ Church of Livingston County. The following are three excerpts from a Covenant Renewal Worship Service led by Pastor Dirk DeWinkle, teaching elder at Christ Church. We trust you will be edified and ministered to by the Holy Spirit through this audio recording. Our call to confession this morning is from Proverbs 19, verse 13. A foolish son is the ruin of his father, and the contentions of a wife are a continual dripping. This proverb does not sugarcoat some of the harsh realities of life. Wisdom is not turning a blind eye toward difficulty. Wisdom is seeing things clearly. God is not interested in making us comfortable with sin, but he is interested in making us wise about it. And what this proverb tells us is that a father of a fool and a husband of a contentious wife is a miserable person. He is ruined and he suffers. He is ruined because all that he has will be inherited by a fool. Not only do his material goods suffer, but his name is also dragged through the mud. The Bible reveals our God as a just God who does not punish fathers for the sins of the sons, nor sons for the sins of their fathers, but our God is also a covenantal God. So while guilt is not shared, frequently the consequences are. A father has a duty to raise his child in the fear and admonition of the Lord, and when he fails, his failure in that is his own ruin because a foolish son is the ruin of his father. The reason that the contentions of a wife are unbearable is because the intimacy of the marriage relationship is because of the intimacy of the marriage relationship. This proverb is very similar to the other proverbs about dwelling in the corners of housetops or in the desert being more appealing than living with a contentious or angry woman. Our colloquial recognition of this truth is found in the saying, if mama ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. A man's wife is in an ideal position to make him miserable. She is there in the morning when he gets up. She's there in the evening when he goes to bed. She can burn his food and she can nag at him all day long. When a man leaves his parents and becomes one with his wife, their interests are uniquely bound up together so that she will be very careful to communicate to him her in to communicate her interests to him. The fact remains that a man's duty is to provide for and protect his wife. These are his duties, but if he does them well, he's the primary beneficiary of a job well done, because she should be happy. This doesn't mean that it is always the husband's fault if mom ain't happy. But it does mean that whatever the reason, he will suffer the continual dripping. And this is why it is necessary to consider carefully and use wisdom and proceed in faith in the pursuit of marriage. Proceeding in faith is particularly important because a good wife is a gift from the Lord. Fortunately, the warnings in this proverb are not alone in Scripture without the corresponding blessings to be found in good wives and faithful children. And moreover, God shows us how to avoid the problems which this poor, poor fellow uh, suffers in this proverb and how to attain the blessings available in this life. God teaches us in the message of the gospel. 
namely the picture of Christ and the church. In the gospel, God has shown us how truly amazing and wonderful marriage can be, and families are supposed to be. And this is why Christians are commanded to marry only in the Lord. In other words, only to other Christians. Because death and resurrection is the answer to the problem. Jesus Christ is the answer to the problem. And this reminds us of our need to confess our sins. So if you're willing and able, please kneel as we confess our sins. A couple of weeks ago, we left off in Galatians talking about the fruits of the Spirit and the works of the flesh. How the flesh and the Spirit are at enmity with each other. And how salvation and success in keeping the law are found by grace through faith, not by merit. It's a free gift. And today's text jumps right on the next issue that arises. We read in verse 17 that the, uh, the verse 17 of verse of chapter 5 that the flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh and these are contrary to one another so that you do not do the things that you wish. Paul told us next how to identify the flesh and the spirit and he gave us two lists. And then he exhorted us to walk in the spirit. But the issue that's raised is this. The fleshly and the spiritual are evident both in the world, and both of them are evident in the church. So what do we do with the guy who still has markers in his life that look more like the works of the flesh list than the fruits of the spirit list? In Galatians 6 verse 1, Paul tells us, Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, Considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. What Paul is giving us here is a Christian approach to discipline. If a man is overtaken in any trespass, when that, that word overtaken, it's not talking about obvious, premeditated, and high-handed rebellion against God. That would that would call down the wrath of God. That would that would call down. Uh, harsh discipline that would God cleanses his body, he cleanses his church. But he, this, this being overtaken in a trespass is not talking about that, it's talking about the guy who falls to the temptation to sin. We live in a fallen world, we have a fallen nature. It's in our nature to fall, to fail, to sin. And so if, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, God's grace is more powerful than our slip-ups. And sometimes the sin is obvious to the perpetrator. He knows it's a sin. He's, re he's repentant. But sometimes it's not even clear to him. But he still may be falling into that sin. And so somebody who sees more clearly can recognize that as sin, and they're, they're given a command here. The command here is to restore the sinner. The word, the word, the Greek word is katartizate, which is a long word, um, but it means to, to set, set in joint. It's like when, you, when, when a joint pops out, it's like a bone out of socket. So you need to pop it back in. You need to help them, help that limb to work right again. And discipline, because of this, is restorative. The command 
given to those of you who are spiritualists, restore him. The, the whole point in, 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 in discipline, the reason that God disciplines those, those whom he loves is because he wants to restore them. He wants to set them right. He wants to make them useful again. So discipline is restorative, and our text tells us a lot about how discipline should be done. First, let's consider who should discipline. You who are spiritual. And this means that those who should discipline, those who are commanded to discipline, are frequently those who are not very motivated to discipline. They're spiritual. They, they see clearly. They see themselves clearly. And they understand that they're sinners, and, and they empathize with the sinner. So it's, there, there, there is a kind, of, there's a kind of person out there who, who wants to jump up and down on somebody else's sin. They want to attack it. But that person is, is frequently unqualified to discipline. Because they're not spiritual. It's because it's, they're looking over the fence at their neighbor, and they're, they're looking at how bad their neighbor is, and, and, and the more they can emphasize that, they think they look better. That's an unspiritual attitude. And the ability to see clearly is really important here. What being spirit-filled is, is being filled with light. And so when you're filled with the light of the spirit, when, you, when God gives you a clear revelation of himself so that you can now identify sin in your life, or in this case, you see it in the life of a, of a fellow brother, it's very important that you see very clearly in judging. And this, this is what Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 2, 7, verses 2 through 5. For with what judgment you judge, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not consider the plank in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck from your eye, and look, a plank is in your own eye? Hypocrite. First, remove the plank from your own eye, and then you'll see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. So if you move the beam out of your own eye, then you can see clearly your own shortcomings, and you can be empathetic rather than proud in your addressing of your brother's sin. And more on this in, in a little while. So discipline is restorative. And those who, who, who are commanded to discipline are those who are spiritual, and that means they need to be able to be able to distinguish clearly, to see clearly. And discipline is a responsibility of leadership. It's a responsibility of authority. God disciplines those whom he loves, as a father disciplines his son. It's, it's, it's those who have authority, leadership, who have rule that are commanded to, to discipline. And this is because the world we live in is covenantal. Leaders answer for the well-being of those who are under their rule. Elders have a higher responsibility, higher responsibility before God. They answer to God for the state in which those who they shepherd are in. Shepherds are responsible for the state of their flock. So this is true in the church. Elders must be spiritual. They must be, they must be, be tied into God, into his word. They must, they, must, they must understand God's revelation in the, in the Bible. They must be able to apply it wisely to life because they're commanded to look at those who are under them and to 
Restore them in a spirit of gentleness, in a spiritual manner. And this is true in every realm, every sphere of sovereignty. I don't know if you're familiar with the sphere of sovereignty, but uh, there's, there's three spheres. The church, the family, and the civic spheres. In, and so it, elders are commanded to be spiritual, and, and the church is supposed to be a type for, for the family. It's like husbands and wives. It's a picture of Christ. And so the church is the type that families are to come to the church to learn how to be like Christ. And when they come to be like Christ, they see that fathers, parents, are supposed to be like God to their children. And so their discipline must be spiritual. They must be clear-sighted, and they must be loving in their discipline. This is true in the civic realm, too. If our, if our civic leaders judge us without wisdom, we live under tyranny. And so, even though sometimes those who are spiritual aren't vindictively motivated to discipline, they should be motivated to discipline by obedience, out of obedience. They must obey the command. Paul is commanding right here, you who are spiritual, restore him. So you must be obedient and you must exercise discipline through love. So the next thing we see is that discipline is work. Restore him. Discipline is labor. It's hard work to correct. It's hard work to set in joint a, a, a bone that's popped out. My brother had his, he was playing volleyball and he popped his, his shoulder out of socket. And he's a big guy and it took three nurses and a doctor pulling on him to pop that thing back in joint. It, it's, it's a lot of work to set things right. Uh, and, and, and when you set in joint the wayward, when you convince, when you exhort and you rebuke, when you bring the light to the darkness, when you shine the focus of the spirit on the issue, when you, when you bring God's word into play, a lot of times that requires work. You're trying to bring repentance into this sinner's life. You're trying to win him over to Christ. But that means that you need to work. But discipline, though it can be harsh, it can be hard, and God commands us sometimes to excommunicate the divisive, or, or people who are high-handed and rebellious, those who are causing harm within the body, it's always to start out restorative. And this is true in every sphere of authority. In the church, the whole point of discipline is to restore peace and harmony to the body. We want to restore fellowship between that sinner and God. And when the sinner is to be excommunicated, it should be very clear that his sin is, is high-handed rebellion. And that it's rebellious. And it's not a simple case of him not understanding or misstepping. In, in family discipline, the whole point is to restore fellowship between the child who's broken fellowship with his family. Sin creates a barrier in relationships. Discipline and love rebuilds the relationship. It, it creates a bridge that crosses that barrier. Justice is not served when discipline is woodenly applied. So, so with, with all of this 
the reason why those who are commanded to exercise discipline, those who are commanded to restore the, the brother who has been overtaken in, tre- in, a, in a trespass, is, is, is the reason they're, they're commanded to be spiritual is because justice must be applied with wisdom, with understanding, with, with, with grace. And this is why discipline should be exercised in a particular way. The verse reads, You are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. So that particular way is in a spirit of gentleness and with caution, considering yourself. We are all sinners. That's the glory of being in Christ, is that we know that there's only one way to God, and that's through Christ. Because he was the only one who wasn't a sinner. Which means that all of us are on the same playing field in that sense. We are all fallen sinners, and, and we all are capable of sinning. So when we, when we judge and when we discipline, when we attempt to restore a fallen brother, it needs to be done in a spirit of empathy and compassion. With caution, considering ourselves, lest we fall into sin. Usually that sin would be pride. And God hates pride. That, that sin of pride is, 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 is really sneaky. It, it sneaks itself right in there. Because when you're dealing with somebody else's sin, it's really easy to get up on your high horse. And feel better than him. But this is where Jesus command to remove the plank out of your own eye comes in because that pride will block your vision. You won't be able to see the speck in your brother's eye. You need to keep your eyes on the goal. You need to keep your eyes on focus. And that means you must not be hypocritical in, in, in sharing the gospel or in, or in judging sin. Integrity and discipline is absolutely necessary. Because everybody hates a hypocrite. Everybody recognizes what that is. And nobody wants to be like that. And Christ is nothing like that. Christ was perfect. He was better than everybody else. And what does he do? He humbles himself. He loves the world. So for God so loved the world that he sent his only son that he should save it. And that's, that's where we get next here is charity. What does... Godly, faithful, loving, spiritual discipline look like. And it looks like charity. And, and I'm using that word in, in two senses. In the old King James sense of, of just agape love. Love, love, love. That's charity. But also in the modern sense of charity. And that's love lived out. Where people give charity. They give to those who have need. And what that looks like is what we read in verses 2 through 6, bearing each other's burdens. We read in verse 2, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Fulfilling the law of Christ is defined as bearing one another's burdens. So what is the law of Christ? Well, we read it in Galatians 5.14, for all the law is fulfilled in one word, even in this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. James 2, verse 8 says the same thing. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You do well. 
And Jesus himself tells us in Math or in John 13, verses 34 and 35, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another. As I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this will all will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. The law of Christ is very straightforward. Love each other. Love your neighbor. Love your brother. Love the person who's sitting in the pew right next to you. Very simple. Very, very straightforward. But our verse explains what that means. It means bear one another's burdens. Now, this word burdens is different from the the word burdens in verse 5. In verse verse 5 we read, For each one shall bear his own load. Uh, This word burdens is actually referring to a heavy weight, something that crushes the person who's, who's underneath it. So, so these are heavy weights that crush our brothers. So, so what does that look like? What is he talking about? Well, the burdens he's talking about here in particular are both the temptations to sin, which can be very weighty. People, people have, some people have propensities to, 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 people have different propensities to different sins. Different people have different natural tendencies to fall into certain sins. And when somebody is oppressed by that temptation because that's their weakness, that's a heavy burden upon them. So the first thing we have there in this kind of heavy burden is, is that, that temptation that they're prone toward. The second thing is the habits of sin which develop in our lives. Men become enslaved to sin because they've, they've sinned once and they, their, their conscience was burned and they felt guilty and yet they weren't strong enough to overcome the sin. They do it again and again and eventually it becomes a habit. Because a habit and, and, it, and it sears their conscience and now they're living in this sin which is destroying their lives and they can't do anything to get out from under it. They're stuck underneath this heavy burden. And so, what does sharing those burdens look like? Well, it looks like the strong assisting the weak. The spiritual ones are the ones who are commanded to restore such a one. The spiritual ones are the ones who are being infused with the Holy Spirit, they're given His strength. And so they're supposed to stoop down and lift this brother up and carry him, assist him. And this is what we read in in several places in the New Testament. Paul gives himself as an example in Acts 20, verse 35. He says, I have shown you in every way by laboring like this that you must support the weak. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. It's not a question of whether the person who you're assisting deserves the assistance. It's a question of do they need the assistance. And if they do, then, and if you, can, if you can do it, if you're strong, you owe it to them if you're going to submit to this command. Again, in Romans 15, verse 1, We then who are strong ought to bear the scruples of the weak and not to please ourselves. It's talking about how sometimes there are things that we could do because 
God has cleansed us. God has God has God has cleansed the world, and so all things are 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 not profitable for us, but all things are lawful for us as Christians. God has cleansed the world, so we can eat meat sacrificed to idols. It's not going to 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 dirty us. But there are sometimes Christians who don't who who aren't there yet. They're not strong there yet, and so sometimes we should abstain from that in order to to lift them up, to help them in their walk. Not that not to false teachers. We're not we're not we're not bow, bowing down to false teachers and allowing them to lie. What, but we can say, no, we can do this. In fact, we can abstain from something if that's going to violate your conscience for a time until you can come to grow and be strong in this. So bear with the scruples of the weak. Not to please ourselves, in order to please God. Paul says, I will become all things to all men, for the sake of the gospel. In 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 14 and 15, Paul says, Now we exhort you, brethren, warn those who are unruly, comfort the faint-hearted, uphold the weak. Be patient with all. See that no one renders evil for evil to anyone, but always pursue what is good, both for yourselves and for all. Again, uphold the weak. So loving your neighbor as yourself then means that we are to humble ourselves and assist our brother where he is, in his sin, and instruct him, giving him light that he may avoid future failings. For example, this is clear when your two-year-old needs to be instructed about not sinning in a particular way, and then re-instructed again, and again, and again, about the same things over and over and over again. And it seems to go on forever and ever. A two-year-old will not stop doing But someday, you're going to look back and you'll notice that it finally took. He's finally stopped throwing his food or whacking his little sister or taking his gloves off in the snow and crying about it because his fingers are cold. Whatever it was... He's done doing that because he's come to recognize truth and light. He's understood that if, if I do this, it's bad and it has negative consequences. It's because a, a, a loving parent disciplines their child. Now, when you're in the thick of it, when you're in the middle of telling a two-year-old over and over and over again, the temptation to not discipline is strong. There's a strong temptation to just, ah, oh, whatever, give up. Or the temptation to discipline in anger is strong, but that's sin. You're not being spiritual if that's what you're doing. But the responsibility to discipline him remains. And the manner of doing it is prescribed. Bearing one another's burdens. Stoop down to his level and help him. It's self-deprecating love. And then the question arises, well, who's my neighbor? And in general, in relation, in general, it's everybody. It's quite clear that our neighbor is the one who is there. The one who is there. We know that from the parable of the Good Samaritan. It's the one who's there. It's the guy who walks down the road. And, 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 and you see a guy that, that needs help. He's your neighbor. If you're, if you're there and you're capable and you're able to help, it's your responsibility to do so. And so we, we understand that Okay, somebody in need. 
is our neighbor, and we understand that the person who lives next door is our neighbor. That we call them our neighbors, right? Uh, we understand that the people in the church are our neighbors, but Jesus tells us that we're not to withhold good even from our enemies. In Matthew 5, verses 43 to 48. You've heard that it was said, you should love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. Because this is what our God is like. Because he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good. And he sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Because if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Even the tax collectors do that. And if you greet your brethren only, you only greet those who are in the church or, the, or those who are in your family. What are you doing more than anyone else? That's what everybody does. Even the tax collectors do that. But you should be perfect, just as God is. And that means your love should know no boundaries. Sharing burdens looks like the strong helping the weak. It looks like loving humility. And it looks like doing good to everyone. And the end result is forward progress of the whole body. Everybody is moved forward. And this requires humility. If anyone thinks himself to be something, verse 3, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Pride is a primary roadblock in the fulfilling of the law of Christ. And this was the problem in the Galatian church. Remember, Paul spent a lot of time in the beginning talking about, I don't care if an angel from heaven preaches a different gospel to you. It's, it's anathema, a curse on them. So the, the, the Judaizers were saying... We are somebody. We come from Jerusalem. And we're going to tell you that you need to be circumcised in order to be saved. Their pride, they thought themselves to be something, was a deceiving of themselves. And the answer is this. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. The basis of humility is found in verse 4. Let each one examine his own work, and then he will have rejoicing in himself alone, and not in another. I scratched my head on this one for a little bit. I was like, what's, what's he talking about? Each one examine his own work, then he'll have rejoicing in himself alone, and not in another. What he's talking about here is the clear vision of self-awareness. The examination of ourselves is always to be done in comparison to the objective standard of God's word. We are to compare ourselves to God, to Jesus Christ, and no one else. Don't look over the fence. Don't compare yourself to your brother. It's not a question. It's not a race between you and him. It's, it's are you measuring up to God's standard? And in a few verses, Paul makes this very explicit. In, in chapter 6, verses 13 and 14, he says, For not even those who are circumcised keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. But God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. So Paul's saying, you may boast, but you can only boast in what Christ is doing in you, and that's boasting in Christ and not in you. If you're boasting in your sufferings, not in your glories, you're boasting in your weakness, because despite your weakness, God used you. Paul elaborates this very 
much. In first in Second Corinthians eleven verse sixteen, all the way through chapter twelve verse ten. But it's it's a big long passage where he says, "If they can boast, I can boast. If they're that, I'm I'm that more." And he, and he says, "But I refrain, lest anyone should think of me above what he sees me or to be or hears from me, unless I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations. A thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan." to buffet me lest I, I be exalted above measure. Paul says, I've been given a burden. And this is, and I'm going to glory in my burden because this is God humbling me. And when I'm humbled, then God can use me. When I'm blind, then He can make me a prophet. Therefore I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distresses, for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Humility is absolutely necessary in bearing one another's burdens. And then in verse 5, we, we learn not to presume upon our neighbors, for each one shall bear his own load. So, while we are to bear each other's burdens, and while the strong are supposed to support the weak, he tells us each one shall bear his own load. God gives us each work to do. We're not to be lazy in doing our own work. We're each to bear our own load. And this is both prescriptive and descriptive. So one, it's the way it should be. We are to bear our own load. That's prescriptive. But it's also how it will be. Verse 7, do not be deceived. God is not mocked for whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. So how you bear your load will be measured out. How you bear your load will be measured out. In between verses 5 and 7, we have verse 6. Take care of your pastor. Let him who's taught the word share in all good things with him who teaches. Teachers bear the burden of spreading the word to their people, teaching their students, bringing along those who are under them. 1 Corinthians 9, verse 11 to 14. If we have sown spiritual things for you, is it a great thing if we reap your material things? If others are partakers of this right over you, are we not even more? Nevertheless, we have not used this right, but endure all things, lest we hinder the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who minister the holy things eat of the things of the temple, and those who serve at the altar partake of the offerings of the altar? Even so, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should live from the gospel. So, that, it's interesting that verse is right between those two. So, each one shall bear his own load. And, and each of us, God gives us a responsibility. To teachers, he gives a responsibility. To teach and to, to those who are here, he gives a responsibility to provide for their pastors. Um, and, and, but what's interesting here is that it comes right next to the sowing and reaping, which in 1 Corinthians 9, he says, we sow spiritual things. And it's not that he's grabbing. Paul's not saying, you need to give me money. <laughs> he's saying, we didn't even accept the money. We didn't take the money. You, 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 we, we, we could have. We could have demanded it. But that wasn't the point. But your heart should be such that you tithe. You turn to God in faith. You turn to God in, 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 uh, in, in, in submission to his word. And you obey what he says. And so that brings us to sowing and reaping. And it's interesting that pastors sow the word. And God is not mocked that whatever a man sows, he will reap. So a pastor is called to be faithful to what God tells him to do. I'll answer for what I say to you here. 
as you will answer for what you do when God gives you a calling in your life. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, he will also reap. This is the law of farming, sowing and reaping. Today is New Year's Day, and it's a good time to do an inventory of what kind of sowing we are doing. Verse 7, do not be deceived, God is not mocked. You cannot pull the wool over God's eyes. He sees into your heart, he sees every motive, he sees every everything about you. And, and God can tell the difference between if you're being hypocritical or not. He sees your heart. So, he says, do not be deceived. Well, who deceives you? First, our hearts are deceitful. You deceive yourself. Second, false teachers deceive you. Galatians 3, it's, Paul says, Oh foolish Galatians, who's bewitched you? The false teachers want you to think that you can puff up yourself by earning your salvation because they're jealous of the freedom you have in Christ. So false teachers are motivated to steal your freedom from you. Satan disguises himself as an angel of light because he wants to deceive you. He deceived Eve and he continues trying to deceive. First, <clears throat> oh, two men can do the exact same things, but their motives can be very different. God knows the difference, though. God knows that this guy's trying to earn his salvation by doing A, B, and C, but he also knows that this guy is just doing what he believes is the right thing to do out of faith. And, and what they're doing may look very similar, but the results will be different because God is the one who gives the increase. One sowing to his flesh, and the other is sowing to his spirit. So, whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. This is a moral law, and it's a law of creation. It's like gravity, and it cannot be denied. If you try to grow carrots by planting radishes, you've got a problem. And if you try, if you want peace and calm, but you go around pushing and shoving everybody, you've got a problem. It's a moral issue. If you want salvation, but you live a greedy and a self-righteous life, then your problem is ultimate. God is not mocked, and you will harvest in accordance with your labor. But you get more of what you subsidize. You can't sow weeds and expect wheat. And in, verse, in Romans 2, verses 5 to 11, Paul puts the moral law very explicitly. In accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, you are treasuring up, up, up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgments of God, who will render to each one according to his deeds. Eternal life to those who by patient continuance and doing good seek for glory, honor, and, and immortality, but to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation and wrath, tribulation and anguish on every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory, honor, and peace to everyone who works what is good to the Jew, Jew first and also to the Greek. There is no partiality with God. Our God doesn't take sides. He's set a standard and he's given us a way of salvation. And he will judge the sheep and the goats. There's two ways. There's, there's peace and glory and honor, or there's indignation and wrath and tribulation and anguish. Those are choices. 
The gospel engages this law. The gospel intersects this law. You will reap what you sow. The gospel engages this law, and it's a mystery of God's love, which is the only ultimate hope for us all. God's law will stand, and we will answer for how we live. We'll reap what we sow. But in Christ, God sees his plants, Jesus' plants, and Jesus' fruits when he looks at us. So when we come to Christ, when we die to ourselves, when we give it all up and we say, it's, my life is yours, Lord. And he, his grace is, is unmeasurable. It's, it's, it's beyond our greatest sins. Jesus can die and he can save the sinner who's hanging on the cross next to him because he repented at that last second. Jesus can cover his whole life of sin and, and, and cover that with the fruits of Christ's righteousness. That intersects here. You reap what you sow. It, it, there's, there's, there's something going on right there where all of a sudden this guy's lived a life where he's, he's, he deserves hell. And the reality is, is that all of us deserve hell. And that for every Christian, that's what God sees. Jesus' righteousness and Jesus' life and Jesus' love. And even for those who are born Christians and are raised up in Christian homes and that God gives us grace and teaches us how to live like Christ tells us how to live, in our sin, we deserve hell. But God has changed that ultimate, that ultimate position of, of heaven and hell in the love of Christ. But his law is still a law that, re- that, that remains true in this world. Even if you're a Christian and you sin now, you still suffer the consequences of it. If you go out and get drunk, you're going to have a hangover in the morning. If you have an affair, your, your, your marriage is in, is in jeopardy. If you commit murder, you may get the death penalty. You reap what you sow. God is consistent. But God is gracious. So sometimes when God gives us this task of bearing each other's burdens and dying to ourselves and loving our neighbors, it gets hard. And that's what we get verse 9. Let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not lose heart. Farming is not an immediate profession. You can plant a seed today, but you're going to have to wait the normal season for it to come out and bear fruit. He who endures to the end shall be saved. Matthew 24, verse 13. Christianity is a marathon. It's not a sprint. James 5, 7 and 8. Therefore be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, waiting patiently for it until it receives the early and latter rain. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Verse 10, therefore, as we have our opportunity, let us do good to all, especially to those who are of the household of faith. And this is the conclusion of the matter. Let us do good to all, especially to those who are of the household of faith. So the command here is to bear each other's burdens. It's to do good. It's to love God, to love Christ, and to love our neighbor. 1 Thessalonians 3, 12 and 13. May the Lord make you increase and abound in love to one another and to all, just as we do to you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God 
and Father, at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and all his saints. So let us all pray. Today is the first Sunday after Christmas, and as we celebrate the salvation that's come into the world, let's remember Simeon, the just and devout man who patiently waited in Jerusalem for the manifestation of that salvation. The Holy Spirit had given him a revelation that he would see the Lord's Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One. His eyes beheld the infant Jesus, and his lips prophesied that Jesus was the salvation which God had prepared and that would save the Gentiles and be the glory of Israel. The irony in this is that it was in the humiliation of Christ that his glory was found. Jesus, a baby, was carried into the temple by his mother and father. He was only days old, and yet God had invested in that little child all the hopes and fears of all the years. And moreover, his humiliation wasn't complete. He still had to bear the shame and the suffering of the cross. Jesus was born to die. But the glorious gospel and our salvation is found in the life that follows his death. Jesus was a little baby. God became a frail body. And this is like the church. We are not powerful, especially by the means which the world measures. Instead of seeking to climb over others to establish our leadership, our power, or our glory, God wants us to turn the other cheek, to bear each other's burdens, and to love our neighbors. We are to be like David when he was persecuted by Saul. If we humble ourselves and become living sacrifices, God can use us and make us into a glorious temple worthy of his presence, which is what God does with this table. Here we have simple bread and wine, and simple people eating a covenant meal. But by God's Spirit and the gift of faith, God is knitting us into a body which can be Jesus to the world. By faith, God is turning sinners into saints. As you partake, humble yourself, that you may be filled by the Spirit, because God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. This table is for all baptized believers, members of Christ's Church, Thank you for listening to these excerpts from the worship service of Christ Church of Livingston County. If you would like further information about anything in these messages, the Bible, about Christ Church of Livingston County, or wish to make any other related inquiry, please feel free to contact Pastor Dirk DeWinkle through our website, ChristKirkMI.com. That's C-H-R-I-S-T-K-I-R-K-M-I.com. Again, thank you and blessings.